Good evening and welcome to Nightline Africa. We are coming to you live from the English to Africa service of the Voice of America. Thanks for joining us. I'm Peter Clotty in Washington, D.C. Um, my position myself, I'm saying that we should carry on with the electoral process because uh, we cannot bear one extra day for President Pakistan uh, on power. Senegalese President Makisa postpones the coming February 25th general election. I think there's opportunities for growth in terms of the actual plan, particularly when we're thinking about creation of employment opportunities for uh, Africa's uh, young population and its growing youthful population. Italy's Prime Minister Giorgia Meloni hails a new partnership with Africa. The MDF's displeasure over these leaks is pricelessly. Why I must protect myself at all costs by ensuring that the, I'm not called to be questioned or arrested. And a Malawian investigative journalist goes into hiding, fearing arrest by the military. Those stories and more coming up on Nightline Africa. <music> Senegalese President Macky Sall has suspended the coming February 25th general election. He is calling for a national dialogue to pave the way for credible elections. No new date has been scheduled for the vote. Before his announcement on a nationwide broadcast Saturday, campaigning for the polls were set to begin on Sunday. Prime Minister Amadou Ba, who is backed by President Macky Sall, was the ruling party's candidate. He faces stiff competition from 19 others who were approved by the Constitutional Council. However, the Constitutional Council's vetting process has come under sharp criticism after some opposition candidates were disqualified. Local reports say Parliament has launched an investigation into the matter. Mimi Toure, a lawyer and former Prime Minister who sought to become the first female president, was disqualified by the council. She tells me that allegations of corruption led to the probe launched by the legislature. So I have been invalidated on uh, full play, <laughs> upon full play. Um, you know, some of my sponsorship disappeared from my USB key, a whole region. Uh, they decided that a dozen of, uh, thousand of my sponsors um, cannot be found in the electoral file. Although I came with the evidence telling them that they are here, they didn't want to hear anything. It's a real mess. And one of the, uh, the party um, of the opposition, uh, the Democratic Party, formerly led by uh, former President Abdullah Wad, uh, filed a complaint in the parliament um, upon um, accusation of corruption of the Constitutional Council members. Um, and um, in a large majority, the parliament decided uh, to launch an inquiry against uh, the uh, Constitutional Council. It's unheard of. And the former prime minister, who has been chosen by President Makisal to be the candidate of the presidential coalition, his party and his coalition agreed and voted for uh, the parliamentarian inquiry that is putting himself at the center of the accusation of corruption. What are Senegalese saying particularly about this unprecedented investigation launched by parliament into the activities of the Constitutional Council that vetted candidates like you and disqualified you? We uh, are saying that the investigation should uh, be carried on. 
um, you know, I, 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 I brought evidence that uh, I have been uh, cheated very clearly. Um, let me tell you one example. When, you, when we arrived, um, we went uh, in the Constitutional Council, you know, low, low room, and uh, we registered our USB key with all our sponsors, and they delivered, delivered us a, a, a receipt, <laughs> okay? And they kept the USB key, okay? And then when we were called upon for uh, the actual um, uh, control, they decided that one uh, out of the 14 region disappeared from the USB key. <laughs> I think mean, it's, it's, it's a laughing stock now. And when um, my representative asked, well, it was there, you signed, and you deliver us a recipe saying, a receipt saying that we do have all the sponsorship for, from the uh, 14 region. It's really here. The receipt is here. They said, well, let's carry on. The election is a few weeks away from now. Will Parliament have time to investigate and then reopen possible uh, the, the avenues for you to contest? Isn't this all a messy situation at the moment? Well, listen, that's the question on the table. That's the $1 million question now. Um, my position myself, I'm saying that we should carry on with the electoral process because uh, we cannot bear one extra day for President Makisal uh, on power. He needs to leave. Um, his mandate will terminate on the 2nd of April. Um, so let's this uh, parliamentary um, inquiry uh, follow its course uh, but let's go to the election, um, and, 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 and that's my position. Although I'm one of the, the victims of, of that uh, uh, you know, corrupt process within the constitutional court, myself I'm saying, let's carry on with the election. But, but Mimi, wouldn't this taint the credibility of the election since some people may argue in the future that their disqualification undermined the integrity of the election and may even throw doubt on the mandate given by the winner of the election to lead us and may not even recognize uh, the winner of the presidential election to be the legitimately elected leader. Well, of that, that, that's a point. That's a, that's a point. You know, at this at this at this juncture, uh, we're gonna go with uh, how to put it. I mean, uh, the solution at hand, um, because if we engage in this path of postponing the election, uh, when will be the next election? There is a vacuum, legally speaking. Um, so uh, President Makisal can argue and say, well, listen, let me take my time. Uh, is it going to be um, a six months uh, postponed or a five years postponed? We don't have the answer. Um, so let's go as it is. The major opposition party, uh, one of its candidates, uh, was validated. He's even in, in, in jail, which is another um, unheard of type of situation, uh, which is Jamai, uh, Basiru Jamai Fai. Um, he was the number two of Usman Sonko. He has been validated. Um, he's in jail. And, uh, you know, let's, let's carry on with the election and we'll see.
Mimi Toure is a lawyer and former prime minister. She spoke with me from the Senegalese capital, Dakar. Nigerians in 26 states are voting in polls organized by the Independent National Electoral Commission on Saturday. They are by-elections and rerun polls in 80 local government areas to fill vacancies in the Senate and other federal and state constituencies. Results of the elections are expected within days after polls close this evening local time. Early this week, Italy's Prime Minister Giorgia Meloni hailed a new partnership with Africa on Monday, unveiling a long-awaited plan aimed at boosting economic ties, creating an energy hub for Europe and curbing immigration. Reuters report during the one-day summit attended by more than two dozen African leaders and European Union officials, Meloni outlined a series of initiatives pledging an initial $5.95 billion, including state guarantees. The summit took place as Italy assumes the presidency of the G7 this month and a few weeks ahead of the 37th Ordinary Assembly of the African Union in Addis Ababa. For more about the significance of this summit, my colleague Douglas Impuga, rich political analyst David Monda. It raised a lot of uh, questions, but it also has potential for a lot of opportunities for partnership. I say it raised a lot of questions because it seems to continue on this uh, angle or uh, line of uh, Africa and African leaders being herded to a European capital, whether it's in this case uh, Italy or Rome or Washington or London or uh, Moscow, and uh, it reinforces this very patronizing relationship of uh, colonizer versus colonized. Uh, it reinforces those structures. It reinforces these ideations and ideas of Africa as constantly having this begging bowl and constantly only receiving aid, handouts from richer countries rather than mutually beneficial relationships between Europe, in, or in this case, Italy and Africa. But uh, having said that, I think there's opportunities for growth in terms of the actual plan, particularly when we're thinking about creation of employment opportunities for uh, Africa's uh, young population and its growing youthful population, but also the use of uh, science and technology from the more advanced countries to mitigate climate change, but also to offer alternative energy sources for Europe, particularly in light of some of the challenges we have with Ukraine right now and some of the problems with uh, shipping lanes around the Middle East because of uh, the challenges with the Houthis and the problems in Gaza. Uh, Talking of the plan, this particular plan itself, What do you make of the complaints by some that the plan was drawn without consulting anybody on the African side? I think that is a very valid complaint. I think it's a challenge also because it seems like the plan was really written in Europe by Europeans for Africans without really the interest of the continent being taken on board. Uh, there really doesn't seem to have been an African, common African position of all the participant countries around this question of that plan. And I'm specifically thinking about a, a reforming of the plan so that we move away from um, 
the dependence on fossil fuels. This plant still is heavily reliant on traditional fossil fuels, uh, which we know have been a, a major problem, not only in terms of climate change around the world, but also for entrenching some of these very repressive regimes that are dependent on oil. So I think that was one angle to it. I think the second angle and something that was not really addressed, I think is which is more historical and philosophical, but which also needs attention, is the colonial legacy of Italy in Africa and the broader question of reparations and an apology of Italy for a lot of the crimes that were committed you know, against the African continent. And here I'm specifically thinking about uh, Ethiopia and, and, and some of the, the, the war crimes there. But lastly, the other element that was not really addressed effectively was this question of migration, EU migration, and Italy's place within that uh, migration narrative. But also the challenging position of Prime Minister Meloni's coalition, some of her more right-wing elements, some of the very racist and fascist comments that Prime Minister Meloni has said that uh, tend to dehumanize migrants and are very racist also towards Africans in particular who are just trying to find a better life in Europe through Italy. What does it say about African leaders? Uh, a continent of over a billion people, most of them young, not being able to sit among themselves and drop plans like this to develop countries on the continent instead of running to other developed uh, economies. It's a continuation of this practice of dependence of African leadership on richer countries. It's embarrassing to see, again, so many of our leaders being herded together in one capital under the auspices of former colonial master without a plan, uh, without an agenda, with these very unequal kind of conferences and environments. But I think more broadly, it shows our lack of ideas on the continent. We're not generating ideas. We're not uh, creators of new modes of thinking to deal with global challenges. But leadership is constantly domesticated around uh, being benign actors, being victims, always being receivers of aid and handouts. But I think the continent really needs to think more deeply around uh, more proactive steps to actually find African solutions within Africa in cooperation with other continents and other countries. But I think ultimately, really, it's not tenable. It's not uh, beneficial to continue to have highest level of our leaders constantly go out with begging bowls to European or American or Asian capital to seek aid when really, if we had better systems of governance, stronger institutions, and uh, better incentives to create wealth on the continent, I think would do a lot better than constantly going to, to beg for help in Europe or in the United States or China. David Monda is a professor of political science at City University of New York. He spoke with my colleague Douglas Impuga from New York. In Zambia, the leader of the opposition Citizens First Party says calls for early elections are due to challenging economic conditions that make it difficult for citizens to live. 
Harry Kalabai, a former foreign minister, says the ruling party and the government have not kept their promise to improve living conditions. At a joint press conference in the capital, Lusaka, opposition leaders, including former President Edgar Lungu, called on citizens to demand early elections. The government rejects the calls. Harry Kalabai, who spoke about freedom of speech during the press conference, tells me that opposition leaders are standing up for the people of Zambia, who he says are suffering. The decision has been necessitated by the rising cost of living in our country. The decision has been propelled by the fact that we are having a leadership in this country that is insensitive to the needs and wants of our people. And so our common denominator has been the skyrocketing prices. And we have decided that we can speak with one voice. Our voice will be stronger. Our voice will be much louder. And so we thought it was necessary that opposition members of like minds come together and speak for the Zambian people who are being downtrodden every day by the current regime. The former president, Edgar Lungu, during this press conference said the people of Zambia should call for early elections. Is this accounted for in the constitution? Because some people are saying this is just a mere political stunt, just to make the government of the day unpopular. It is not a question of it being accounted for in the constitution. We have an example of what had happened in 1991. The UNIP government then, under President uh, Kenneth Kaunda, was supposed to have gone for elections in 1993. But because of the challenges Zambia was going through, riots every day, and the cost of living was excruciatingly high, the people forced the government of the time to call for early elections. And the government at that time was very sensitive to the people's plight. And they went ahead and called for early elections two years before their time. It is in that context that we in the opposition are saying, if Mr. Akainde Ichilem has got anything, if he loves the Zambian people, the best he can do is to call for early elections so the Zambians can choose a new leader, choose a new system of governance for themselves so they can better their own living conditions. Critics are saying that the opposition leaders, including former president, you have nothing to show for in terms of providing credible solutions to the challenges facing the country. And President Lungu, they, they said, uh, cause the economic problems that the country is facing with excessive borrowing while he was in power. So why do you team up with him to accuse the new government trying to solve the problems created by previous administration, including the administration that you were part of as foreign minister at the MMD? Uh, look, I think for me it is not even a question of teaming up with uh, the former president. The truth of the matter is that all of us have seen the problems we are going through. And this is as a result of the current government that when they come into government they are going to fix the challenges that the people are going through. They have not fixed anything. But, 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 but the, president ha- the president is on record to be negotiating to ease the debt burden to ensure that Zambia has a little breathing room to create infrastructure and improve economic conditions. Isn't it true? But why should the, but why should the president be negotiating with the IMF? Zambia has got enough minerals. Zambia has got enough resources that can take us out of the current uh, uh, quadmare. What he needed to do was to monitor the mines and how the mines were operating. He should have done due diligence on the mines. But what did he do when he came into government? He reduced the mineral royalty tax from 6% to 3% to please his sponsors then. But but isn't it a reason, isn't it an economic advantage that will make investment attractive 
for foreign investors to come in and pump in money, such as uh, some of the mines people are investing in to employ more people. Isn't this strategic? That is not strategic because the action was taken two weeks after he got into government. He has now finished almost three years in power. And up to now, those investors whose environment was creating have never been seen in Zambia. Today, you are talking about the Concola Copper Mines. They have brought the same investor that we had, Vendata back. Today, we are talking about Mopani on the Copper Belt. Mopani today has been given to IRH, a company that we are an investor that has no historical background on mining. An investor that was making the website on the very day that they were given the contract to begin running Mopani. These are the problems that we have. We have not seen those investors, and because we have not seen those investors, it is all political jokes that are going on and nothing more. Talking about issues, one of the criticisms being leveled against the government is the crackdown on freedom of speech and assembly. However, your United Group were able to speak freely to the media, hold a press conference. Doesn't this contradict the accusation that a government is clamping down on free speech? The contrary is only true. Because when you look at where we were holding the the meeting yesterday, that is not the initial place where the meeting should have taken place. We were supposed to have held the meeting at a place called Mika Lodge. The police stopped us from having that meeting. They forced the owner of the lodge to pay back the money that we had paid for the conference facility. And so we are forced to go to another opposition member's uh, secretariat. That's why we had the meeting. If that is not shrinking political space, what is it? Harry Kalaba is the leader of the Opposition Citizens First Party. He spoke with me from the Zambian capital, Lusaka. Meanwhile, Zambia's information minister has dismissed calls by former President Edgar Lungu on citizens and the opposition to demand early elections. Cornelius Muitua says Lungu's accusations that the current administration has failed to effectively run the economy is, quote, misplaced. He asked that the economic challenges facing the country are due to Lungu's poor management that led to his loss at the post to President Hakainda Hichelema in the last general election. His remarks come after Lungu said at a press conference that the government has also failed to manage the cholera outbreak, which has left at least 600 people dead since October. For more reaction, I reached Information Minister Cornelius Muitoa. Well, first of all, we have to indicate that that meeting by so-called opposition alliance indicates that the democratic state continues to widen. There is guaranteed enjoyment of the freedoms of speech, freedoms of expression, freedom of association and assembly as by law established under the Zambian constitution and relevant international instruments. The cause by Edgar Lungu for early elections and calling for citizens to revolt are highly misplaced. It is a classical example of his habit of misjudging and miscalculating the mood of the nation, just like he miscalculated and misjudged the mood of the nation in 2021, leading to his loss of power. What do you say to critics and, of course, some of the opposition leaders who are saying the government has failed to keep its promise of improved living conditions and that even millimil uh, has skyrocketed? Zambians don't have the means 
to live comfortably like they used to anymore. And that promise is made by the president when he was opposition leader. He has failed to keep them. And including the fight against corruption, that he is going after targeted opponents and critics of the administration just to make them incapable of challenging him in the next general election. Your thoughts or reaction? First of all, when you talk about corruption, only two days ago, Transparency International released its corruption perception index on the Zambian government. And for the very first time in more than a decade, a sharp decrease in corruption uh, you know, activities in Zambia has been recorded. And that is a matter that should be of interest to the media, particularly international media, so that when local political vocalists speak, you hold them accountable to say you are failing to fight corruption uh, and so on. But what about the report of TIZ, Transparency International, which has given Zambia kudos that for the first time in more than 10 years, we have recorded a sharp decrease in corruption activities in the country. And TIZ is known. It is uh, apolitical. It is neutral. No one can say that uh, the Zambian government influenced their research you know, outcomes. Nothing. So the fight against corruption is on its course, and any allegations of failure are on the basis of uh, uh, being ill-informed or misinforming people. When you talk about the cost of living, the cost of living is informed by the cost of production. South Africa, Botswana, all these neighboring countries are selling fuel at a price higher than the pricing in Zambia. And there is this narrative where the opposition, particularly the former ruling party, wants to masquerade as though things would have been better under their regime. Yes, they might have been better if only they continued what they left in office to have been doing, wherein they were acquiring fuel from oil marketing companies on credit. And to date, as we speak, the government is grappling to pay off an outstanding debt to oil marketing companies starting at 750 million United States dollars because ahead of 2021 general elections, they ran an artificial economy where they were uh, sort of subsidizing, but by way of credit. That is it. This is a government which is faced with a, an a, a creeping, unsustainable debt for which day and night the president and his team goes around the world to negotiate for debt restructuring in order to give the country fiscal headroom for it to redeploy resources into needy sectors of they are getting back to full-scale operation because new deals and contracts have been entered with investors to bring in money. Cornelius Mutua is Zambia's information minister. He spoke with me from the capital, Lusaka. Investigative journalist Gregory Gondwe, who exposed the Malawi government's planned purchase of 32 armored vehicles from a company implicated in corruption, is in hiding, fearing arrest by the military. For viewing Lamek Masina reports from the Malawian commercial capital, Blantyre. 
in his story published Monday, Gregory Gondwe, who works for Platform for Investigative Journalism, quoted unnamed military officials saying Malawi Defense Force paid a firm associated with a businessman Zuneth Sata millions for military equipment. Sata is facing allegations of corruption. The story said the transaction involved a $4.98 million payment, part of a nearly $20 million deal for the procurement of 32 armored personnel carriers for the Malawi Defense Force. Using leaked documents from the Malawi Defense Force, Gondwe reported that the deal defeats the Malawi's government commitment to combating corruption. Sata, who is based in the United Kingdom, is under scrutiny in Malawi for allegedly bribing Malawi Vice President Saulos Chirima in return for government contracts. The Anti-Corruption Bureau arrested Chirima in 2022, leading Malawi President Lazarus Chakwera to suspend the powers of the Vice President. Malawi's government has cancelled all businesses connected to Sata. Gondwe told VOA from an disclosed location Friday that he has gone into hiding following a tip from military sources about plans to arrest him. One being a confirmation that indeed a payment to the tune of 5 million US dollars plus was initiated, but that payment has not yet been finalized. As it stands now, that payment remains with the Reserve Bank of Malawi. This is the second time in three years Gondwe has faced arrest for publishing a story about the government's dealings with the Sata. In 2022, Malawi police arrested Gondwe and confiscated his phone and laptop for publishing leaked documents exposing another secret government deal with the Sata. Gondwe refused police demands to disclose his sources and later was released unconditionally after press freedom groups and the U.S. and British embassies in Malawi expressed concern over his arrest. The Media Institute for Southern Africa in Malawi, or MISA Malawi, said in a statement Thursday that the threats against Gondwe have a chilling effect on journalists. A delegation from about 15 civil society organizations in Malawi on a Thursday held a closed-door meeting with the Minister of Defense, Haring Kandawire, where they expressed concern about alleged intimidation of whistleblowers like Gondwe. Benedicto Kondowe is the chairperson for the National Advocacy Platform. He told reporters that the minister clarified two issues. The MDF's displeasure over these leaks is priceless. Why I must protect my source at all costs? By ensuring that the, I'm not called to be questioned or arrested because my source was of the view that either the army might take the direct legal route where they effect an arrest or use the unorthodox means where they can accidentalize my situation and then everything ends there. The other Kondowe said was that the payment stems from a 2020 contract payment for which had been delayed following investigations into Sata. Kandawire and Malawi's Attorney General Tabo Chakaka Nyrenda told local media that there are no plans to arrest Gondwe over his story. But Gondwe says he can't trust them, citing the 2022 arrest of Anti-Corruption Bureau Director General Martha Jizuma, despite assurances from Malawi's President 
not to punish her over a leaked audio scandal in which she accused the government of receiving kickbacks from Satam. Given this precedent, it's challenging to take at face value the current assurances from the Minister of Defence and the other government authorities. My experience and observations lead me to approach their statements with caution and to continue prioritizing my safety. Gondwe is working with his lawyers and other organizations to map out his next move. Lamik Masina, VOA News, Blanta, Malawi. And you are listening to Nightline Africa on the English to Africa service of The Voice of America. I'm your host, Peter Clote, in Washington, D.C. Coming up in the second half of Nightline Africa, the Saturday music spot from our collection of music from the continent. But first, a Ugandan parliamentarian is calling on the lawmaking body to establish an evacuation fund for citizens who face mistreatment or are stranded abroad. Ibrahim Semuju also argues against calls for a total ban on labor exportation, saying similar actions taken elsewhere failed to prevent citizens from going abroad in search of opportunity. His call came during a parliamentary session as Ugandans expressed concern about the reported mistreatment of citizens who are employed as domestic workers abroad. For more about his call for an education fund to help migrant workers to return home to their families, I reached parliamentarian Ibrahim Semuju. You see, the reason I made this proposal was because of the widespread outcry, especially of girls who go to work as domestic workers in the Middle East, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, etc. Because I told the parliament there are no standards in homes for domestic workers. You can don't go to work in companies where you can demand for standards. They go to work in people's homes. People in their homes behave in all sorts of manners, others are very abusive. But, and we are also vulnerable, which is the reason these girls go to work as domestic workers in this century. So my proposal to Parliament was that instead of crying with Saudi Arabia, with Kuwait, with Bahrain, with Oman, let's just establish a fund to evacuate whoever is stranded, whoever is being abused. And then stop handling this matter emotionally that we want our girls to be treated fair. I mean, who on earth can enforce standards in people's homes? Because these girls are scattered in all sorts of homes. But, but where will the funding come from? Will it come from the government or these recruitment agencies? You see, if, if, you, if you look at the, the foreign earnings uh, by Uganda, we now have gold, we have tourism at number one. Second is remittance from mainly these domestic workers in the Middle East coming to almost 2.1 trillion a year. So if these domestic workers collectively are bringing into your country 2.1 Ugandan, trillion Ugandan shillings, because it is the, your economy that they are growing, what stops you from putting aside 100 billion shillings? They have very yet facilitated these girls to return when they are stranded or they are abused. The same way you invest the money in coffee, the same way you invest the money in tourism. What do you say to those who are suggesting that perhaps the recruitment agencies 
must be pressured to ensure that when they recruit Ugandans abroad, those they send these migrants to must protect them as part of the negotiation process to ensure these migrants are protected. You see, that, that, that's the theory, that is the academic way of handling this matter. The recruitment agencies in Uganda, in many cases, work with the recruitment agencies in the Middle East. Once these girls are handed over to the recruitment centers, people and homes one by one will pick them. So really, I want anyone in the world to tell me that you can enforce standards in people's homes and you are going to be treated the same way. So I don't want to deal with this matter in an academic way. We have a crisis as a country, our economy cannot absorb all the children who are growing. So let's do what we can as a country. First of all, Saudi Arabia now has about 200,000 Ugandans. If every year they abuse 10, that is a small fraction that we need to deal with as a country instead of burdening the recruitment agencies. Because the former minister of gender, the Honorable Janata Mukwaya, told the parliament that the year Uganda put a ban on exportation of domestic workers, 40,000 girls arrived in Oman. So even if you put pressure on the recruitment agencies, these girls will find their way through all sorts of uh, avenues. Talking about ban, I was about to ask you uh, that because some are even calling for a total ban on migrant workers from Uganda uh, from being sent abroad to go work as domestic hands. You don't think it's a good idea? They, they, need, they need to run from Ethiopia. When Ethiopia put a ban, there was a demonstration. Let me tell you, when there was a ban, they continued going. I would rather we keep records of those who have gone because sometimes it's very easy to trust them than those who go by themselves. I know police in Kenya is charging Ugandan girls a lot of money who trust themselves. So people should be realistic. Until we've grown our own economy to absorb our own people, you cannot go and enforce labor laws and, 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 and treatment of people fair in another country. That's not your jurisdiction. You can only prevent people to making out of the country or formerly living when the economy can give them what to eat. Ibrahim Semujo is a Ugandan parliamentarian. He spoke with me from the capital, Kampala. Residents in South Sudan's capital, Juba, say the recently installed closed-circuit television cameras in the city will help improve security and reduce crime. The South Sudan National Police Services, the CCTV cameras, will help police catch criminal suspects. For VOA News, Manyang David Mayar reports from the South Sudanese capital, Juba. South Sudan's Interior Ministry installed surveillance cameras on the streets of Juba on Tuesday. Viga Robert, a resident of the capital, praised the move, saying the cameras will reduce crime. I see these cameras will help in many things. It helps with accidents and even criminal activities. There are many things that happen without people seeing, and I hope the government will also ensure freedom of people are respected in terms of privacy. Emmanuel Taban, another Juba resident and a motorcycle or border border driver, says the surveillance cameras will help uncover hidden criminal activity. Camera CCTV is very important because it can trace out uh, like in case if 
you are having uh, things to do with the insecurity, it can help mostly like if something to do with the criminal issues, if it happens in a hidden place, it can show out. If you fail to identify the person, or if you fail to get the passions, you can trace it through CCTV, it can show out the passions, it can help really. If possible, let all the roads to be connected with CCTV such that it can help uh, to trace out, it uh, can even prevent criminal issues in the town. South Sudan President Salfakir initiated a program using surveillance drones and 150 cameras in 2017 in 11 different locations of Juba. Angelina Teng, the interior minister, has a warning for would-be criminals. Right now, everybody in Juba should know that whatever you are doing, we are watching it. Don't think you will do a crime in darkness and escape without being arrested. If you do something, you will be traced up to your home. These cameras will cover the whole of Juba County and we hope to extend it to many places and even states. Juba, a fast-growing city in the East African country, is known in recent years for the killings by unknown gunmen, motorcycle robberies and bag snatchings. Minister Tenge is calling on Juba residents who are involved in crime to think of legal ways to survive. So, so it is important for you from today to to put aside the work of crime and see other important work for you and your family. And if you are not married, do something that will help you avoid conflicts with the law because you will be arrested. Our purpose is one peace for the civilians and their properties so that people are free to do whatever they want to do. South Sudan is preparing to hold its first elections in December later this year. Teng says the government is prepared to offer services to all people in the country to ensure peaceful elections. For VOA News, I'm Anyang David Mayor in Juba. And right now it's music from African Collection.
And that was music from the continent. We hope you enjoyed it. Nightline Africa comes to you on Saturdays and Sundays at 16 and 18 hours UTC from the English to Africa service of the Voice of America. And from the rest of the Nightline team, including producer Douglas Impuga and engineer the great Al Santos, we say a big thank you for joining us tonight. And remember, as the elders say, you cannot climb the ladder of success with your hands in your pocket. I'm your host, Peter Clote in Washington, D.C. Good evening, Africa. No